Welcome to Nostrum, the debate soap opera, where deontology is more than just an idea, it's a rebuttal by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostrumite. Before we get going, we do like to remind you that just as Jules and the Nostromite began writing these episodes at the beginning, you should begin listening at the beginning. All of our previous episodes are available at www.jimmenick.com. Before doing our episode, we will read from the epistles of St. Jules to the Forensicians. This is dated September 24th, 1997. Subject, if it's Wednesday. Nostrum gets yet another weekly episode, number 33. And at this point, Jules gives the URL. The Messerschmitt Tournament, which began 15 episodes ago, is finally coming to an end, thus making it the second longest tournament on record after Yale 1997. Since the Nostromite and I were both in New Haven this weekend, we had plenty of time on our hands to knock out this episode, so for once we didn't almost not make it. I can't assess how the negatives in that phrase compound. Nonetheless, the Nostromite is in a state of permanent depression over the New York Times outing Gertha this Sunday. Not that the mite gives a pickled herring over whether the Faustmeister was gay or not. In fact, that is his point. What is the big deal? What difference does it make? Young Werther will remain just as sorrowful. As the mite so aptly pointed out, this may mark the difference between the U.S. and Germany. Gertha gets outed, and the entire populace goes into a state of permanent depression. But in the United States, when Walt Whitman got outed, what did we do? We built a mall on Long Island and named it after him, presumably as a place where gay people could go to do their shopping unmolested. America, what a country, signed Jules. There's also a couple of other letters uh, subsequent to this worth looking at. One is from... An email, Mac Hawkins to Julie CBS. I just want to thank you for a hilariously real depiction of the debate universe. I look forward to it every Wednesday, sometimes Thursday, when the Nostromite is grumpy, I guess. For whom do you debate? And it is signed, Mac Hawkins, assistant debate coach at Isidore Newman School. And there is reply, dear Mac. Sorry to take so long, but the Mite and I only check the Nostrum pipeline once a week when we post our latest episode. The thing is, the Mite maintains 17 different email addresses, including three at Hotmail, whatever the limit is at AOL, his work, he's got a new part-time job at a meatpacking plant, don't ask, but at least he's not directly involved in the packing of the meat, and a couple of loose ones he can barely remember. He tends to get them all confused, and then he comes running to me to figure them out, while I only have this one, which I consult religiously. If you consider it religion to go to church once a weekend, that only begrudgingly, but I digress. Anyhow, thanks for your support. The Mite and I don't debate anymore, I'm afraid, but we do judge a bit if the money is right and the food is decent, and the bus ride isn't too long. Although, with the mite working at Hot Dog Central these days, our judging days may be limited. See you on the circuit, sign Jules. There's also another 
email, and the subject line is hi from A-I-R-A-M-G-A-L to Julie CBS. Hi. Hey, thanks for all the soap editions. Is there any way that you can add more than one installment per week? I love it and can't get enough. Thanks a lot, Maria. There is a reply from Jules. Maria, I mean, seriously now, we barely get one episode out. And with the might now working at Hot Dogs or Us, who knows if we'll keep up. You realize, of course, that Bernstein and Sondheim, Rogers and Hammerstein, and Lerner and Lowe talk about your big guns, all wrote Broadway songs called Maria. Sort of. I think that the uh, Lerner and Lowe has, they call the wind in parentheses, but let's not split hairs, especially considering that the might is now spending a lot of his time, well, splitting hairs, H-A-R-E-S. Anyhow, if, as has been suggested, O'Shaughnessy and Nostrum might ever make a musical out of Nostrum, maybe we'll write a song called Maria, too. Of course, there are no Marias in Nostrum yet, but there's always room for a couple more debaters. Maybe we could make her a policy debater for Veil of Ignorance. I mean, somebody's got... Wait a minute. Why should we tell you what's going to happen next? Thanks for your support. Signed, Jules. And now, episode 33, P.D.A. Sooner or later, there is an award ceremony. The good Lord willing and the creek don't dry. Or at least there is an award ceremony most of the time. At an experienced college venue like Miami Messerschmitt, the award ceremony is a ritual worthy of Lenny Reifenstahl in the Third Reich. And perhaps, in fact, it is even inspired by Ms. Reifenstahl. If it was a good enough homage for Star Wars, then it's good enough for the tournament director at the Miami Messerschmitt Messe Forensics. The ceremony is scheduled to begin promptly at 5 o'clock at Messerschmitt's Roy Cohn Law Building Auditorium, and students begin pouring in that general direction beginning about 4 o'clock. Promptly at the stroke of 5, about half the students are assembled in the Roy Cohn Building, playing cards, or sleeping, or staring at the ceiling, and exactly none of the tournament staff have arrived. No one really expected it to start at 5 o'clock as scheduled. No award ceremony in the history of high school forensics has ever begun as scheduled. If it did, it might mark the end of forensics as we know it in this country, perhaps even the world. Sometimes an award ceremony can be hours late, because a tournament has fallen so behind that they simply can't catch up. Perhaps the tab room is inexperienced. Rumor has it that even as you read this, that a Yale 97 tournament is still waiting for finals pairings. Perhaps a couple of judges went off to hoist a few Heinekens without remembering to turn in their ballots, or perhaps the computer has not been cooperative, and the entire tournament has had to be redone by hand. But even in the normal course of events, award ceremonies run late. They have to. It's tradition. And where would we be without our traditions, like a fiddler on the roof? At 5.33, a Miami Messerschmitt head pokes out from behind the stage curtain of the Cone Auditorium. A couple of debaters spot the head and start applauding, and the head immediately retreats from view. They're never going to start, David Brillig says. They never do, William Hand responds automatically. They are sitting in the auditorium with the rest of the night and day team, the remainder of which is entertaining itself as best it can, given the situation, due to the lack of a real meal since the previous Thursday night, when they were still with their parents, more than a few stomachs are beginning to rumble, but not David's or William's. With them, the rumbling is lower in the furthest reaches of the intestines, because they're still in the tournament. They made it to the final round, the final six duo pairs. And now they're waiting for the rankings. 
For all they know, they could have taken first place or sixth. There's a big difference between those two numbers. I've never been this nervous in my life, David says. Welcome to the Bahamas, William replies. I'm never going to hear the end of that, am I? One Bahamian beauty is bad enough. Two smacks of carelessness. David smiles. If that's carelessness, I've finally found what I want to major in in college. We're coming in first, you know. David shakes his head. No way. That Chekhov girl was too good. But her Uncle Vanya sucked. But she carried him, definitely. Not to first place, she didn't. What about the Durang kids from Behemoth? Maybe, but Behemoth doesn't have the clout here that it does back home. Are you saying they only win because of their clout? What I'm saying is that they win a lot back home because if they don't, Alita Devins would probably clout the judges over their heads. Maybe, but that Durang was still pretty good. I've seen that Durang a million times. It's the kudzu of duo. We're not going to come in first, David says. Trust me, old buddy, we're going to win this one. David lets out a long sigh and slips back into his seat. William remains perched forward on his, waiting, hopeful. Another Messerschmitt head pokes out from behind the stage. This one is attached to a body. All eyes turn to her. We're just about to start, she calls out. There is a smattering of applause. The final policy round just ended. As soon as the tournament director gets here, well, she is interrupted by the arrival of half a dozen Messerschmitters through the center door of the back of the auditorium. Dressed in suits and ties and fancy dresses, they walk noisily toward the stage, full of confidence and self-satisfaction. They are the directors of the tournament. They are all students at Messerschmitt. And here he is, the head behind the curtain with the body concludes. This time there's real applause, and all the debaters who were not in the auditorium two minutes ago suddenly congeal on the place, entering through every door and window. Somehow, through the magic of award telepathy, they know the time has come. Team members find their teammates, coaches find their teams, the seats fill up quickly, and the tournament director finds himself standing on the stage at a podium with a microphone. And then it begins, the most dreaded part of any tournament, the Thankathon. Before we get started, there are a few people that we must acknowledge. The award ceremony is nearly an hour late. Most of the people in this room have to travel hundreds of miles to get home. Some of them must travel thousands of miles. The majority are not receiving trophies, and most of them feel that they were shafted for one reason or another. Exactly two people in the room have any interest in matriculating at Messerschmitt, and they are both legacies. The people who have won trophies want to run their fingers over that tin to prove that they really did it. A handful of finalists are still on tenterhooks waiting to hear the results of their division. But the tournament director has a few people that must be acknowledged. A few hundred, that is. That is why they cut to the host at the Academy Awards, because when it comes to a few people that must be acknowledged, the acknowledgers never know when to stop. The thing is, these people really don't have to be acknowledged. Few, if any of them, are in the room to hear it, and most of them had no choice, and no one in the audience gives a flying flapdoodle anyhow. But that's never stopped anybody with a captive microphone yet, and it's unlikely to stop anybody in the future. An award ceremony without a thankathon is like a whale without a blowhole. It just can't be done. 
And so the tournament director goes through his endless litany of thank yous, and the applause after each name gets progressively less enthusiastic, until in a moment of misguided proselytization, he goes so far as to acknowledge his Lord Jesus Christ, at which point the forensic natives begin getting less mildly restless at the director's inability to recognize any boundaries of good sense. That he fails to mention his mother, George Washington, and those brave men who gave their lives at Normandy on that fateful day in June 1944 is probably merely an oversight. A good ten minutes are absorbed by the thankathon until, finally, the name of the last person without whom this never could have happened has been uttered aloud, and the awards can begin in earnest. And so they do. Dozens of them. Hundreds of them. Thousands of them. Almost as many awards as people to be thanked. A major tournament with both speech and debate has numerous categories and nearly numberless awardees. If each were to be acknowledged singly, the applause could stretch for months. Nonetheless, their achievements are too important to be ignored. Hence, the clap. As awards are announced, the name of each winner is called out, and the entire room responds with one enormous synchronized clap. Joe Blow, clap. Jane Doe, clap. George of the Jungle, clap. It's murder on the hands after a while, your palms turning red and hot, but it does move a ceremony along quickly. Only the finalists will be rewarded with true applause, while the winners will receive the inevitable, well-earned standing ovation. At the Messerschmitt, the speech awards come first. Unfortunately for David and William, the duo awards are the last of these. They must wait at the edge of their seats for all the other claps and the applauses and the stand-ups for Extemp and OO and HI and all the others. But finally, the duo octafinalists are called to the stage. David and William, feeling as if the eyes of the entire world are upon them, stand up, adjust their jackets and ties, and walk up to join the others. Most of these people know already how they've done, and the only thing they have to be nervous about is not tripping and falling off the stage into the front row and figuring how to shake hands and accept the trophy at the same time when there's two in a team and one tournament handshaker and one tournament trophy distributor. At least at the Messerschmitt, both team members get a trophy. At some tournaments, the team gets to share the trophy, which means that the tournament is too cheap to acknowledge everyone with a five-buck piece of tin but then again, times are tight, and money is money. The names of the non-advancing octofinalists are read, and each gets the clap. The names of the non-advancing quarterfinalists are read, and each gets the clap. The names of the non-advancing semifinalists are read, and each gets the clap. Now only six pairs remain on the stage, David and William among them. They will now be counted down from the last to the first. Sixth place to first place. For the contenders, this is the hardest part of all. Number six, it's not David and William. Number five, it is not David and William. Number four, it is not David and William. Number three, it is not David and William. And then there's only two pairs left, David and William and the team from Brooklyn Behemoth. The four of them shake hands and wish the other side good luck while in their innermost cores, wishing that the other side, A, lose, and B, if they do win, be cursed for life with plagues so vile that even God couldn't come up with them. And in second place from Brooklyn, Behemoth, David Brillig breathes out for the first time in the last hour. He looks at William. They smile at each other. Then as the Behemoths take their trophies, William embraces David with a big bear hug. 
in front of everybody. And David wants to die right there, firm in the belief that now everyone in the room, everyone in forensics, everyone in America will think that he's gay. Damn it, he shrieks. William pulls away. What? And the Miami Messerschmitt champion duo team from Lighten Day School are David Brilling and William Hand. The crowd rises to its feet. On the stage, the applause sounds like a force of nature. David and William, confused, ecstatic, scared, hateful, intolerant, proud, loving, shake some hands, and a moment later, William is holding an enormous trophy, and David is also holding an enormous trophy, which they carry back to their seats. And the rest of the awards are given out for the policy and Lincoln-Douglas debaters. In policy, Tara Petskin and Bill O'Connor make it two in a row, but their coach is nowhere around to share in their glory. In Lincoln-Douglas, no school from north of the Mason-Dixon line makes it past quarters, but there is some good news for night and day. Jasmine Maru and Griot Goldbaum did make it two quarters, which means that they both have earned a limb toward entering the end-of-the-year Combat of Conquerors Championship. In fact, Rio is now fully qualified as a result of his win the week before at the Andrew Johnson. And so the Miami Messerschmitt Messeforensics finally comes to an end. The tournament director bids everyone a safe trip home. There is one final blast of applause, and it is over. But for some, the ramifications are just beginning. Does this mean that David and William are going steady in the eyes of the world? Is the Messerschmitt really over? Is Yale really over? Did the guy who wrote the diary about going to China before Marco Polo bring back meatballs? Will we ever have a resolution we actually voted for? Does anyone really expect people to want to listen to a soap opera about debating? Any answers to these questions are probably hidden in rebus puzzles in our next episode, Asteroids, How to Cure Their Painful Itching.